What's so special about Hero Bread's soft, fluffy, and delicious breads, buns, and tortillas? Hero Bread serves up 0 to 1 grams of net carbs, 5 to 11 grams of protein, and high fiber in every delicious serving. Made with natural ingredients, Hero Bread supports gut health, promotes weight management, and helps maintain blood sugar. Hero also drops other limited edition ultra-low net carb goodies like rich, flaky croissants and buttery brioche slider rolls. Head to Hero.co to shop today. Hey, could we do that again? I know we haven't met, but I don't want to be an aunt, you know? I mean, it's like we go through life with our antennas bouncing off one another continuously on ant autopilot with nothing really human required of us. Stop, go, walk here, drive there. All action basically for survival, all communication simply to keep this ant colony buzzing along in an efficient, polite manner. Here's your change. Paper or plastic? Credit or debit? You want ketchup with that? I don't want a straw. I want real human moments. I want to see you. I want you to see me. I don't want to give that up. I don't want to be an ant, you know? Ah, yes. No more of that existence of an ant. A mechanical Borg-like being that the powers and principalities want us to be. After all, Gnosis is what makes us into full divinities and full humans at once, as we were meant to be. Our astral guest in this eternal now, although not a Gnostic scholar, but an accomplished journalist, gets the Gnostics. In his book we'll also be discussing, he states, The central dictum of Gnosticism is, Find the divine spark within, and you will know the all. None of this is real. It's all just trials to test your heroic attributes. Your life is yours to create. Let's not be ants. Let's reach our potential. Let's be the best version of ourselves. Let's know the all because the all wants to know us. And you have the means because you have arrived at the virtual Alexandria and... Spastomy! This is madness! Aeon Bite Gnostic Radio, an initiation by conversation into the dark corners of myth, magic, and meaning. A crash course in cult culture and conspiracy. A virtuous virus invoking and informing history, holiness, and heresy. Each week, I commandeer your connection to bring the most accepted and rejected scholars and provocateurs to your attention. Fun, compelling, and deeply weird. This is the blow your mind cocktail party conversation you always wanted to listen in on. And you better listen, because as the saying goes, I got 99 problems and being trapped in a decaying body in a money hungry society on a dying planet in a mysterious dimension might be one. You mock my pain! Life is pain, Highness. Anyone who says differently is selling something. But here we are, in this age of Hermes, Philip K. Dick world, and Gnostic times, waking up and no longer being ants, getting out and knowing all that needs to be known. And here I am, your host Miguel Connor, 
So glad you're here and always telling you how much potential you have and how, as the saying goes, the artist is not a special type of person, but every person is a special type of artist. And it's time to write your own gospel and live your own myth. Here we are. You want to keep things on an even keel, I guess is what I'm saying. You want to go with the flow. The sea refuses no river. The idea is to remain in a state of constant departure while always arriving. Saves on introductions and goodbyes. The ride does not require an explanation, just occupants. And here I am again, with a shorter than usual intro, which might make some of you happy. I've been so busy lately, I might go sane. Many moving parts with finding Hermes and other projects, and one of those 99 problems is always the game of Saturn. So let's get to our topic, and I'll give you a meteor intro in our next show on one of my favorite gods, Prometheus, coming out soon. The fire that danced at the end of that match was a gift from the titan Prometheus, a gift that he stole from the gods who were terrified of what we might do with it were it to fall into our hairy little paws. Our astral guest is Ariel Sabar, as mentioned, an accomplished journalist who just released an incredible book, Veritas, a Harvard professor, a con man, and the gospel of Jesus' wife. I couldn't put this book down, and it was closer to a thriller than a non-fiction book. Heck and Hecate, Veritas is a multi-dimensional work, a cautionary tale on the dangers of projection and ambition. A touching journey of brilliant humans who fell because they used societal expectations and childhood trauma as the wax to bind their wings while attempting to reach the sons of success. It's a labyrinth into the domains of ancient texts and forgeries and academic politics. And yes, the book is an excellent bird-eyes view of Gnostic studies. Highly recommend Veritas, and highly recommend you follow any of Ariel's keen writings in journalism. It's awe-inspiring stuff. As a bonus for patrons and AB Prime members, beyond the first part of Ariel's interview, I got Robert Price to give us his take on the Gospel of Jesus' wife, Dark Epic. After all, Bob was with Karen King in the Jesus Seminar. Expect some engaging content on Mary Magdalene. Bob will also provide his perspective on other controversial discoveries like Secret Mark, the James Ossuary, the Gospel of Judas, and more. Keep in mind that Ariel does present exhaustive sections on these discoveries as well in his book. Roads? Where we're going, we don't need roads. So please enjoy, and please stop diluting yourself into thinking you're an ant. And please focus less on judging others or falling short. After all, Jung said that we're here not to be good, but to be ourselves. Bind your wings with the wax of imagination and empathy. 
Know that every human being we encounter is ultimately a mirror of our evolving selves. And that mind killer that is fear is what divides us all in the end. But the advantage to meeting others in the meantime is that one of them may present you to yourself. And please keep supporting Ahom Bite and Finding Hermes. This includes donations, merch, and me books like Voices of Gnosticism and Other Voices of Gnosticism, which provide interviews with many of the figures in Ariel's book, including, yes, Karen King. Enough of my short drivel. Let us do the interview with Ariel Sabar on Veritas. But first, please tell us more about fear and empathy, Oliver. And that internal war each one of us is fighting, as Plato said, in this vast lattice of mirrors we call humanity. Good evening. We are here tonight to talk about violence, or maybe human nature. We are here to talk about human nature. A great philosopher once wrote, in times of peace, the warlike man attacks himself. This is the root of all our problems. And by this, I mean we. We are the root of all our problems. Our confusion, our anger, our fear of things we don't understand. Violence, in other words, is ignorance. There are two kinds of stories we tell our children. The first kind. Once upon a time, there was a fuzzy little rabbit named Frizzy Top, who went on a quantum fun adventure, only to face a big setback, which he overcame through perseverance and by being adorable. This kind of story teaches empathy. Put yourself in Frizzy Top's shoes, in other words. The other kind. Oliver Anthony Bird, if you get too close to that ocean, you'll be sucked into the sea and drowned. This kind of story teaches them fear. And for the rest of their lives, these two stories compete. Empathy and fear. And so I bring you tonight's play. A work in five acts about a fuzzy little bunny who got too close to the ocean. And what happened next? Let us begin. This is the AM Byte interview, and with us, we definitely have the pleasure of being joined by Ariel Sabar to discuss his new book, Veritas, a Harvard professor, a con man, and the gospel of Jesus's wife. Ariel, thank you very much for coming on the show. Thanks very much for having me. Appreciate it, and as I mentioned, and we'll say in the intro, really love this work. And I know our audience will really engage with it as we've had many past shows on this topic. And we had many of the guests that you interviewed in your book. But first, uh, with us, we've got 
Vance. Vance, how are you? And thanks for joining us too. I'm fine this morning, Miguel, and I'm very excited to learn an inside story here of the uh, Gospel of Jesus' life. It's a very good read. So, Ariel, I'd like to start by, again, I said I really enjoyed this book, and this book is more about forgery. It really has everything. I would like to call it a thriller because it's got... uh, espionage, exotic lands, the Catholic Church, ancient history. It's got everything. It could be made into a Hollywood movie, but all I think it needs is a a chase scene. And even (laughs) then, I think Hollywood could just have like Matt Damon playing you just doing one chase scene and we'd have a a great movie. So it's an incredible read. Did you think this story would end up like it did? Um, not, not at all. I mean, I, you know, this is a story that, um, initially really just fell in, into my lap. I was a, uh, relatively new freelance journalist for Smithsonian magazine, uh, back in 2012 and got a cold call from, uh, an editor there who I'd never spoken to before. I, I had filed exactly one other story for Smithsonian magazine, hadn't even been published yet. Top editor calls me and says, listen, Ariel, um, we've got advance word, um, that in about three weeks, a very prominent professor at the Harvard Divinity School, uh, Dr. Karen King, um, you know, world-renowned uh, scholar, uh, history of early Christianity, um, the sort of non-canonical gospels or the Gnostic gospels, as they're, as they're sometimes called. And she has um, made this discovery. She has found a, a scrap of papyrus about the size of a business card with eight lines of Coptic on it. Um, one of which says, um, Jesus said to them, my wife. And in her opinion, it, this is the first um, ancient manuscript in which Jesus utters the words, my wife. So, you know, I'm thinking like, I I, I didn't know what was going on. Because I'm not, I, you know, I've, I've written internally about religion. My father actually, and this is, this is my first book, my father um, uh, is a native speaker of Aramaic, uh, which is said to be the language of Jesus. He's a professor at UCLA in New Eastern languages. You know, I'd written a little bit about early Christianity. Um, I, I myself happen to be Jewish, but certainly the Gnostic Gospels, um, the non-canonical Gospels were not anything I'd written about before. But when the editor said, look, it, it's going to be an exciting story. We'd like you to basically drop everything, um, catch the next plane out to Harvard, um, you know, interview Dr. King, and then essentially accompany her to Rome uh, in a couple of a couple more weeks when she is going to announce this discovery at a scholarly conference, um, really just across the street from uh, uh, the Vatican. And when you walked in into this story, uh, you must have been blown away because as you write from a scholarly conference, it didn't end up being like a, a festival, a great uh, intense, you might say, party or reaction from the crowd, like from the, from the get-go. Yeah, it was really interesting because, you know, again, I, I'd certainly done in, you know, in the course of three very, very intense weeks with very little sleep. Um, you know, I researched and then wrote a 6,000 word story for Smithsonian Magazine, whose publication coincided with Dr. King's announcement in Rome. Um, and um, I, I was the only journalist in the room uh, when when she announced this this discovery and I tape recorded it. And, you know, I, I remember being really interested in how the top um, people in her field would would respond, um, and I, I suspect your listeners already know this, but you know, Coptic is uh, the language of Egypt's earliest Christians. It's the language in which many of the oldest surviving copies of uh, both the canonical and non-canonical Gospels are, are, are preserved. 
And so you've got the top people in the world uh, in this field. They meet once every four years. There just simply aren't enough of them to justify an annual meeting. So they have quadrennial meetings. So it's a pretty big deal. Um, and, you know, she makes her presentation and, um, you know, almost immediately there, there are a lot of questions. Um, and the interesting thing is that the questions at that point don't so much concern authenticity or forgery. Um, they concern simply Dr. King's interpretation of the text. And, you know, you have to remember that this is a fragment. So that means it's missing its top margin, its bottom margin, its left margin, and its right margin. So while there are uh, eight very short lines on the front, they're missing, the lines are missing both their beginnings and their ends. So we don't really know what words appear before each surviving line of text or after each surviving line of text. So there's kind of a lot of room for interpretation. And I remember right away that, that, that scholars were kind of questioning whether the fragment said what Dr. King thought it said. Uh, and that, that, was, that was sort of the initial sort of heated reaction. Then the other, I guess, the, the other um, uh, sort of uproar in the room, and, you know, if you've spent any time with scholars, they, they tend to, you know, in, in person, at least, be very civil to one another. They, they may detest one another in <laughs> yeah. private, I suppose. Um, but, you know, in general, they tend to be civil to one another. So, so one of the great uh, scholars, uh, Wolf, Wolf Peter Funk, uh, Canada uh, Nagamati scholar, uh, stood up and said, you know, I'm dissatisfied. You have not presented us with any photographs. And um, he was quite, quite angry. And, and I think his, his uh, you know, he, he, he felt that if Dr. King were going to present so uh, seemingly earth-shattering a discovery in front of her peers, she owed them a photograph in that initial presentation. Now, Dr. King uh, had, had told me that her laptop had broken um, on, on her flight from Boston to Rome, and I have no reason to doubt that. But three, three days had passed between um, that plane ride to Rome and her presentation. And Harvard had many of these images already uploaded, ready to post online. It, did, it seemed sort of strange to me that Harvard could not have emailed her those, those photos or that um, Dr. King's colleague who was in the room, Anne-Marie Leyendijk uh, of Princeton, a paparologist, former student of King's, who also had the photographs on her laptop, could not have um, shared them with Dr. King to, to use in that presentation. And, and the reason those photos are important is that, you know, before, typically before um, one launches into interpretation of a text, one has to decide whether the manuscript is in fact authentic. And the way in which Coptic scholars and papyrologists make that determination is by visual cues. So they need to see what the ink looks like. They need to see what the handwriting looks like. They need to see what the papyrus material looks like. And um, without any photographs in the room, that made it very difficult and I think frustrating for a lot of her colleagues on that September day in 2012 um, when she uh, announces the gospel of Jesus' wife to, to colleagues. Yes, it's it's and it made such a huge splash. And you write, you were there at the conference, and there were scholars like Einar Thomason, probably the world's leading uh, expert on the Valentinians. You mentioned another Scandinavian scholar. I'm, I'm assuming it was Ismo Dundenberg, and they were suspicious that this wasn't, uh, you know, Valentinian. And so people were suspicious from the beginning. Mm -hmm. And uh, how long did you follow this story after the conference? Yeah, so, I mean, it was interesting. I, I got this initial assignment from Smithsonian. So sort of part one of that story was a feature, 6,000-word feature that posted essentially the instant that Dr. King announced 
her discovery in Rome. It had basically been pre-written based on my interviews with Dr. King, with uh, Dr. Emery Leyendyke, and with uh, Dr. Roger Bagnall, a uh, world-renowned uh, paparologist at NYU at the time. Um, and, and so I had I had that I had the first story. So did the New York Times, and so did the Boston Globe. We had all been granted early access to Dr. King, although I was the only one that um, went, went to Rome. And then um, a few about a week after that, I I refined and revised that first story to kind of weave in the reaction from Rome, weave in what journalists call color to kind of put people in the room in Rome as this is all going down. Um, to solicit, you know, I solicited reaction from really important figures in the field like Elaine Pagels and um, wrap that all together for another story. This one that did not appear online, but actually appeared in the print uh, hard copy uh, November 2012 issue of Smithsonian Magazine. So that was really, frankly, where I had left it for about three years. You know, as I said um, at the outset, I'm a freelance journalist. I I go where the assignments take me. Um, you know, I, I filed the story. It was a, it was a whirlwind sort of assignment. It was really interesting and fascinating for all kinds of reasons. But I then had to move on to other stories for other magazines and didn't really think about it again until November of 2015. Yeah, and then you went down an incredible rabbit hole, which we shall get into. But uh, yeah, it's interesting. You mentioned Elaine Pagels. She was against it being called the gospel of Jesus's wife. Uh, Karen King did that one because even this morning, Vince was, I need to read this gospel of Jesus's wife. And I'm like, well, here you go. It'll take you five seconds. <laughs> and, <laughs> right, right. And I'll read it for <laughs> <Yeah>. you. <laughs> it basically says, for me not, for my mother, she gave to me the, the disciple said to Jesus this, abdicate mary be worthy of you not next line jesus this to them my wife and next line she can become a disciple to me and no man who is wicked is he and then i exist within her because and then there's an a and as you mentioned from the beginning even in 2012 again you went to this conference in rome in september of 2012 soon after People knew that the lines were directly from the Gospel of Thomas, right? That was a big red flag from the beginning. Yeah, that was one of the earliest um, finds, and it actually wound up, you know, sometimes early takes are bad takes. You know, a lot of people think they know what's going on, like right at the beginning, and they haven't really done their homework. But one of the um, discoveries made made very early on, first, um, to give them proper credit by Dr. Francis Watson at Durham University in the UK, um, he was looking at this thing and he's like, he's like, wow, you know, that the, the line break um, on line one is it matches the line break in the um, surviving Coptic copy of the Gospel of Thomas, which is already kind of interesting because typically line breaks don't don't match. And then he's looking at all the words and he's really realizing that um, that you could basically um, create the Gospel of Jesus's wife by cherry picking phrases from the Gospel of Thomas, um, and then reordering them so that you're saying that you effectively are saying something new that sounds like something old. Um, I always, someone, I forget who first put this metaphor out there, but but some writer was saying um, that it was almost like, you know, you've seen these ransom notes in the movies where the ransom note is built of built up of words that are cut from different <laughs> yeah. magazines and different fonts. Um, well, th this was sort of a version of that. And what Dr. Uh, Watson concluded um, relatively early on within, within a, a matter of, of three or four days was that you could you could reconstitute um, or you could constitute the gospel of Jesus' wife 
um, by, by cutting and pasting phrases from the Gospel of Thomas. And every single phrase, uh, essentially, in the Gospel of, uh, of Jesus' wife um, could be found in the Gospel of Thomas except for two words, my wife. Uh, and so that was a really er an early breakthrough. It was poo-pooed by some of Dr. King's supporters early on, but it wound up being a really important one um, as, as, as people started investigating that theory more closely. And I think you'd mentioned him a little bit before we came on the air, but ultimately what scholars would discover uh, was that uh, not only did this trace to uh, sort of the, the, the Coptic Gospel of Thomas, but it traced to a particular online transcript of the Gospel of Thomas that contained errors in Coptic because the individual who transcribed it uh, made a mistake here and there. Um, and <laughs> one, of the, one of the sort of uh, smoking guns was when this, these very, this eccentric typographical error uh, made by um, uh, Mike Grondin, who may be familiar to some of your listeners as the host of a very influential uh, Gospel of Thomas website. Um, he made a small error in one of his PDFs, um, but it's a PDF that a lot of people like to download. And oddly, that error, that type, typographical error in a 2002 PDF of uh, the Gospel of Thomas winds up in what's supposed to be ancient handwriting uh, in the Gospel of Jesus' wife. And we can talk about that more later, but that, that, is an important, that was an important breakthrough in um, the path that led to scholars um, deciding that this was uh, a fake. Yes, indeed. And, and what were some of the mistakes that Karen King made from the get-go? I think you, you spend a lot of time with them, but what do you say, maybe bullet points of, uh, well, how things yeah. went from uh, suspicious to bad quickly? And I, and I don't want to give away too many spoilers because a lot of them are in the final chapter of the book, but I'll certainly be able, you know, happy to talk about some. Um, I mean, I think it was clear even to scholars at the beginning that this was somewhat of a rush job um, in the sense that, um, you know, she did consult her former student. She did consult uh, Roger Bagnall before going public, um, but she never consulted a top scholar of Coptic religious papyri. Uh, even though Dr. Bagnall had had recommended she do so, um, you know, one of the things that happened when she had submitted her article on the papyrus to the Harvard Theological Review, the Harvard Theological Review is one of the most important theological journals in the world. It's been around for a century. It's edited by the Harvard Divinity School. Um, and she submitted her article to them before she went public with the papyrus. And, you know, they do what any good journal does, which is send an article out for peer review. So you're basically taking um, an article and sending it to the top people in the field around the world. And the Harvard Divinity's, uh, Harvard Theological Review doesn't mess around. Um, and uh, two out of the three reviewers, two out of the three anonymous double-blind peer reviewers came back and said, oh boy, um, this, thing, <laughs> this thing looks really bad. Um, this looks like a forgery and you will be embarrassing yourself if you publish it. And they identified lots of problems, including the, the apparent cribbing from the Gospel of Thomas, uh, 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 like something like four basic violations of Coptic grammar uh, within the span of eight lines, um, really bizarre, unprecedented handwriting, uh, ink that didn't look right, ink that looked like it was applied by a brush rather than a reed pen, which would have been very anachronistic. Um, and so already you have really important people in the field, although nobody knows who they are at the time. I will figure out who they are, and I disclose who they are in the book. Um, but they're, they're like the top people in the field in like the study of Nag Hammadi text, Nag Hammadi papyri. Like you almost couldn't do better. 
and they come back and they're like, don't do it. It's, this is, this is bad. Um, this will not wind up, this will not turn out well for anybody. Um, but in spite of that, uh, Dr. King is able to overcome these objections, um, certainly in her mind. Um, it had, the, the Harvard Theological Review had not committed to publishing it at that point because of these concerns. But she felt confident enough to go forward and present this in Rome. And I think in retrospect, I think probably even she would acknowledge that that was probably a mistake. Oh, and the other, the other obvious oversight was she'd done, she'd conducted no scientific testing. Um, and, you know, I'm sure your listeners are familiar with the sort of Gospel of Judas saga. Oh, yeah. you know, they, conve- they convened a very broad group of experts, um, you know, everything from language to grammar to papyrology to science, um, to re- you know, to, to really give this thing a, a thorough scrubbing before they went public. Uh, and, yeah, the Gospel of Judas is thought to be an authentic text. Um, that was not done here. Um, in this case, uh, there was no science. Um, there was no expertise from the people in Coptic who, um, who, who actually deal with these ancient fragments of the Nag Hammadi Gospels. And so uh, there was kind of a there was a kind of a rush to go public, and, and that would be second-guessed afterwards, particularly since the, the rush seemed to be to make the announcement across the street from the Vatican. I mean, Dr. King does not lack for opportunities to showcase her scholarship. It literally, like two months after the uh, Coptic conference in Rome, she could have delivered the, her, her discovery to an even bigger audience at the Society of Biblical Literature, um, I think, which was being held in Chicago that year. I mean, there's multiple conferences where she, where she could have unveiled this, but there was a seeming rush to go public um, at this particular conference, which happened to be, she said it was just just, just by chance, um, happened to be across from, um, you know, St. Peter's Basilica and the Vatican. So um, I think those were some of the, there, there was more corner cutting involved and I sort of like readers to, to pick up Veritas and, and discover what those are when they get to the sort of final reveals in the book. But that, that I think gives you a taste of some of the shortcuts that, that were taken here. Yeah, for the audience, uh, Ariel's book has so much more in it. It's quite a, a, a labyrinth that goes uh, to so many places. But I guess this, of course, begs the question, and I see that your book as a story of two individuals, Karen King and someone else we will get into. And it's not about forgery. Uh, your book has so many prisms and angles, but obviously in this show, we talk a lot about Jung because he's influenced Gnosticism. So I see the story of projection, unresolved childhood trauma and agenda, because people may ask, how could somebody like Karen King, who's so driven, who broke so many glass ceilings, who accomplished a very rational, straight-laced person, go down this road? And you put very well, Ariel, which jumped out to me. You wrote in one section in your book, put crudely, the Da Vinci Code's Mary was a womb without a brain, while the Gospel of Mary, Mary was a brain without a womb. The Gospel of Jesus' wife was the answer Karen King had looked for all of her life. I think, to me, that summarizes it, doesn't it? Yeah, I mean, that, that's sort of, again, admittedly put somewhat crudely there, but, you know, Dr. Dr. King is, is an absolutely brilliant scholar uh, who's done a lot of wonderful work, uh, and as you said, has broken many glass ceilings, Done, done. You know, very important scholarship, and I guess the thing that you know fascinated me is is why did this slip through? You know, she's a very canny person. She's tough. She's a skeptic. She's built a career um, skewering the fictions of the of the church. She's really good at at, at figuring out 
where the stories that the Orthodox uh, uh, and and the and the and the traditional and the devout have told have told us from the um, pulpits and Sunday school, how those stories uh, don't really add up. Um, so she's not someone who's particularly gullible. And so what what always fascinated me here is how does this particular exception uh, get through all those filters? Like what is just right about it that it managed to slip pa- that it manages to slip past all of her defenses. Um, and, uh, to me, one of the, one of the things that, that, that the gospel of Jesus' wife does is it, 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 it sort of resolves this problem that Dr. King had focused on in her own scholarship, which is that, you know, certainly, um, you know, the gospel of Mary, um, and even to some extent, the gospel of Thomas and its 114th uh, saying, you know, uh, there's a kind of, a, there's this notion that, uh, Mary uh, is is just as qualified to 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 preach the good news as as, as the male disciples, um, but that comes at the expense of her gender in many ways. Um, I think in 114th saying, I mean, Jesus says something like, "I will make her male right. um, so that she can enter the kingdom of heaven." Um, and in in the Gospel of Mary, you get the sense that her gender doesn't matter. What matters um, are her qualifications. But for Dr. King, that was a kind of a problem because. It was like you had to sacrifice um, your gender and your sexuality in order to qualify to preach um, the way the men did. And so um, what the Da Vinci Code was was kind of an interesting work of fiction in the way that it said that actually, you know, Mary Magdalene uh, is the Holy Grail. You know, she her womb is the Holy Grail for for Jesus's seed. And there's this bloodline essentially um, that, that, that uh, traces all the way to the present. And so you have this more uh, sort of sexualized, uh, romanticized uh, Mary Magdalene. And what Dr. King, there was never a resolution between those two versions of Mary Magdalene. And, and it's amazing how efficient these nine lines of, of Coptic, or these eight lines of Coptic are, because actually it only, all you need is two of these lines to resolve um, all, this, this conundrum that, that, that Dr. King had identified. And it's, the, and it's the fourth and fifth lines. I mean, in retrospect, it's probably no coincidence that in what's supposed to be a random fragment of papyrus torn from the middle of a larger page, the most, the most important and catchy lines are dead center. It's like someone was using like, you know, Photoshop to like force justify this thing so that the, the, uh, the, the, the most important lines were right in the middle. Uh, Jesus said to them, my wife, you know, dot, 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 dot. She is able to be my disciple. So now you have Mary Magdalene as wife, uh, as, as, as a presumably sexual person um, who has a husband, and she's able to be my, my disciple. So she's able to teach, she's able to lead, and she's able to be you know, fully um, uh, 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 comfortable in her own flesh as, as a woman. And so it really kind of pushed all the buttons uh, in a really um, disturbing way in the sense that you know, now, now that we know that this is a forgery, that the forger or the con artist who presented this to Dr. King um, would have so um, cruelly um, kind of profiled her to identify, to know exactly where like sort of the Achilles heel is. And I, it makes me a little sad, you know, to think that someone would go to such lengths right. to, to try to, you know, uh, do something like this. Although I think in his mind, in the con artist's mind, it was a win-win. Um, I mean, I think he had his own reasons for wanting to launch this version of Mary Magdalene and, and this version of Jesus uh, into, into the public consciousness. 
Oh, indeed. I mean, for a con to work, they have to give you what you really want. And it's interesting, Ariel, because it's almost like our past have the seeds of our success, but almost the seeds of our doom, too. I know I keep getting Jungian, but Karen King's past really maybe overlooked past came back to bite her because as you write in your book, she was uh, born in Montana. She, She started out as a conservative Christian at one point. She rebelled. She really was swimming in a misogynistic field and everything that she wanted uh, basically kind of came true with the gospel of Jesus's wife, didn't it? And of course, as you write, her having cancer really made her identify with her body and she wanted Mary to identify with her body too. Yeah, well, thank you for those great questions. I I mean, I, I actually do think that, you know, kind of a Jungian uh, um, approach or even a you know, Freudian um, approach here is is important in understanding motivation. I don't think you can ever fully pin down people's motivations, but learning learning about her childhood, learning about the way in which she felt sort of trapped in this very small, you know, eight I think eight hundred person town in Montana, um, and not really ever feeling like she fit in, feeling picked on. Um, she said that you know she went to the sort of main uh, main Methodist church in her town with her family. Um, it didn't seem quite earnest enough for her. So she goes and has this evangelical conversion at a summer camp, and she feels really sort of empowered by this conversion. But when she gets back to her Methodist Sunday school, um, one of her teachers belittles her conversion experience. Says, oh, it'll pass. You know, this it probably didn't happen the way you thought it did. And according to some of her childhood friends that I interviewed, this was a really a transitional moment for her because um, – you know, she finally felt like she she discovered what she wanted, what her what she wanted her relationship with God to be, and then you have someone who comes along and, and who's supposed to be, you know, an authority figure, supposed to be someone who you trust. And this this woman, this Sunday school teacher, told her, yeah, you know, what what you thought happened didn't really happen, and that's not how you know good Christians uh, do it. And so very very early on, she has a sense that there are there are people in the world, even in places as small as Sheridan, Montana, where she grew up, who are going to tell uh little you know christian boys and girls that there's a there's a there's a right way to be a christian and a wrong way to be a christian and this really gets under her skin and you know she's a she's a uh she's a soloist you know she's a she's a trailblazer but by nature um and 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 to be told that you're not doing it right um i think if if you need any kind of prefiguring of why later in her career she she decides to focus on this line between orthodoxy and heresy and how damaging it is, and how limiting it is. It really, I think, it's possible, at least with one thread, to trace it back to some of these experiences she had as a young believer in Montana. Oh, yes. And as you write, Ariel, she talks about uh, joining the Jesus Seminar with Robert Funk, who, uh, of course, uh, really brought a lot of fire into her soul about, it's almost this sort of activism, Christianity. Uh, I remember talking to uh, Robert Price, who was with her in the Jesus seminar, and he was upset because she was trying to get rid of the word Gnosticism, and he called her. He said she's having a hobgoblin mind, and she's trying to get rid of Gnosticism because mm. so, to elevate these sort of punk weirdo Christians to alternative Christians, and he was not happy about that. Of course, your book does document this. Other scholars like Dylan Burns and, and Bart Ehrman were against her getting rid of the word Gnosticism. But as we continue, 
I think what exemplifies too what Karen King's idea of being a historian was is uh, you quote her saying, history is not about truth, but about power relationships. Yeah, you know, this gets at some of, and this was something I didn't really know when I set out to, to do the research, but but certainly, but you know, while writing the book, I, I spent something like a month every single day, really, literally reading every single thing um, Dr. King had written, whether it was a book or an article or speech, and uh, it occurred to me in, in in reading some of her more theoretical works, most most notably her book What Is Gnosticism, um, that she has a kind of interesting view of of history. It's kind of a postmodern view, um, which is that sort of history as we, as most people conventionally think of it doesn't really exist, that it's all a fiction. Um, but any, any piece of writing, any piece of culture that one encounters isn't a reflection of any objective reality or anything that actually happened in the past, but it's, it's, it's a, it's a kind of political track. It's, it's a, it's a point of view. It's somebody trying to sell you something or sell you a story about what happened. And that fundamentally what happened in the past is unknowable. Um, that there's no way that we can really access the kind of reality in the past. So all we have are these tendentious sort of um, uh, sales pitches from various people who are writing them in, in the past. And I mean, she even argued that we should just, dis, dis, uh, you know, uh, break the link between his, you know, truth and chronology um, and history and chronology, which is a very interesting argument that I don't know that a ton of people would, would agree with, but it made me, it made me, interested in the way in which she conceptualizes history. And so, um, you know, certainly uh, postmodernism, you know, has its role to play. And I believe, you know, I studied in college uh, quite, quite deeply, actually, uh, has a role to play in kind of literary analysis in the sense that, I mean, I think, I think, you know, uh, your radio program and, and your own followers are a perfect example of this. Um, people reading some of the Gnostic uh, texts in the third century and the second century, uh, May, take, may have taken away very different meanings from those texts as you or I or anybody might might take from them today. We make them relevant to our own moment, right? When we, we interpret them in the context of our own society and our own time, and that's great. And postmodernism is really great at sort of thinking about the ways in which readers um, of texts in different periods and different places can extract completely different meanings from the same words. And that's, that's an absolutely worthwhile um, mode of literary analysis. Where I think there's some slippage in what I discovered um, in, in, in Dr. King's work is that when you start applying that sense of um, we can all kind of come to our own idea of truth to historical investigation. And that's where, I mean, again, I'm an empiricist. I'm a journalist. I believe that one can go out in the world, ask questions of people, look at documents, um, look at the archaeological evidence and kind of understand um, what, what happened uh, in, a, in a verifiable way. Um, but what I think ha it happens in this, in the case of the Gospel of Jesus' wife, is that I don't think she was as, as obsessed with documenting the historical reality of the Gospel of Jesus' wife because, um, because of the way in which she conceptualized history and the fact that she didn't believe that truth existed in any objective way, that truth is essentially just a language game. Whoever tells the best story, whoever has the best narrative, whoever has the most power gets to tell the story that becomes everybody else's reality. Uh, I mean, I realize that they're even like some Gnostic, I mean, postmodernism in some way is Gnosticism. Oh yeah, I mean, very much. I mean, it's, it's not, it's not that far apart. Um, so in a way, the fact that you have these, this overlap, um, you know, it made me wonder whether even in her assessment of the idea of often, if you don't believe in history, do you believe in authenticity? 
And so like for me, whether the gospel of Jesus's wife existed in antiquity has only one answer. Either it did or it didn't. It's not, there's not like shades of gray there. It's like either this is a genuinely <laughs> yeah. authentic text or it's not. Um, whereas in postmodernism, I don't know what, it, I don't know what the possible options could be. Um, certainly if it were an authentic text, the phrase gospel of Jesus's wife um, could well be interpreted. Uh, sorry, the phrase um, Jesus said to them, my wife um, could be interpreted in, in many different ways, all of which would be legitimate. That I think is perfectly fine, but whether it existed or not, I, I don't know that there's more than one answer. It either, it either did exist or didn't. And I, I should say the other thing here, which is really interesting is because we don't have a complete line, we don't know what Jesus says after my wife. I mean, it says, Jesus said to them, my wife, and then, the, then it's dot, dot, dot. There's, there's more to that line. Like John Stewart, my wife, yeah, John, if she liked Thai food. Right. <laughs> I mean, I, to, yeah, right. John Stewart has some fun with this on Comedy <laughs> right. Central back in 2012. But, you know, I think I even asked Dr. King for my first story because I wanted, I mean, just as a layperson, was like, well, how else might that line end that might sort of give people you know, speaking of postmodernism, give people a completely different reading of that line because we don't have all of it, right? Um, and, you know, she, to her credit, I think she was joking, but said, you know, Jesus said to them, my wife, dot, 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 I don't have one. Um, you know, uh, <laughs> or my wife, dot, 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 is the church. You know, th there's, there are different ways of ending that line that would certainly completely recast its meaning. But I think um, Dr. King came in with a, with a very strong idea of what, what she felt it should say. And then she was able to find the things that she felt um, said that. And one, and one of the other omissions in her article, which, which was pointed out immediately, was that in a 52 page article with many, many footnotes, there is not a single reference to um, what's known as the uh, bride of Christ trope. And this is, a, this is a trope that's been around for centuries, that Christ is married, that Jesus is married to the church. Um, you know, it's reflected in a lot of canonical texts, this notion of, of Jesus uh, as a bridegroom, and either the church or Jerusalem as his wife. But there's not even a single footnote in her initial article that says, um, this could be an interpretation, but here's why I'm not. She didn't even bother to dismiss it, which was very curious. Like, why, yeah. why don't you address, why don't you at least acknowledge that there's this tradition of a, the bride of Christ, and that bride of Christ is not Mary Magdalene, like not even as a footnote. And again, that I think in retrospect, gave people a sense that there was, she came in having already decided what this was supposed to mean and then found, retroactively found the evidence to support it. Well said, Ariel. And it's uh, ironic, uh, Karen King, as you write, a, a loner, rejecting traditional history, going against the power of the Catholic Church. Uh, yes, it's ironic. She was a Gnostic, even if she wanted to get rid of the term Gnosticism. But that's what's great about your book. There's so many ways to see it. And so now let's get, please, to how you come into the story. You came back to write on this article. And was your idea, I need to find the source of this gospel? Who wrote it or who sold it to her? Yeah, no, exactly. Um, I mean, I, one of the things that um, really um, stuck with me from that first story I wrote for Smithsonian in 2012 was this question of who is this individual who gave Dr. King or who, who approached Dr. King with this papyrus. And, um, you know, Dr. King, I, I pressed her for this information back in 2012 because I was really curious, uh, as were many of her colleagues. And she said, I can't tell you. I can't tell you who he is. He asked for anonymity. I am going to honor that request. Um, and I can't, I really just can't tell you who he is. Now, this isn't all that uncommon. There are many private collectors who 
don't want to be identified. They're not particularly interested in the spotlight. They don't mind getting a little help from a professor. They don't mind even publicity coming to their, um, you know, their manuscript, because obviously if, if a Harvard professor takes an interest in something you own, that can, you know, make, make certainly boost its value, its financial, its market value quite, quite a bit. But she wouldn't tell anybody who this guy, that I was. And, you know, as a, as a journalist, um, you know, we're always taught to, to, to ask questions of who our sources are. You know, it's like sort of like the first thing you learn in journalism school. I, I imagine one of the first things you learn as a student of history is um, evidence is important, but so is source sources. Um, and so in this case, who is the source? Um, and, you know, when, when someone, I was a daily journalist for, for many years, first in uh, Providence, Rhode Island, and then in Baltimore, Maryland, later in Washington, D.C. Um, and, you know, if someone walks into the newsroom with an absolutely sensational scoop, it's not enough simply to kind of look at what the person has brought you and decide whether you think it's true or to talk to a few experts about it. You you have to do your due diligence on the individual who came into the newsroom with a sensational scoop because if you discover that they're flim-flam artists, if you discover that they have ulterior motives, um, if you discover that they don't have a great record of truth-telling, then um, you need to probably do a little more homework. Now, it's okay. If you, if you discover they have an ulterior motive, um, and you decide to go forward anyway, that's fine, but you should at least know what the ulterior motive might be. And and that's part of what, what bothered me is that we couldn't really learn that in 2012. So in 2015, I'm still a freelance journalist. Uh, I'm kind of in a, in, a, in, a, in a slow spot between a couple of stories. And I, you know, I start thinking again about this just mind-bending story I'd written three years before for Smithsonian. And like, whatever happened? Whatever happened to the gospel of Jesus' wife? And I start using this very sophisticated investigative tool, uh, Google.com, um, and uh, <laughs> and I, I uh, and I and I find that there've been some you know peer-reviewed articles written for and against authenticity. Dr. King sort of continuing to argue based on some scientific testing she had finally done after the fact that uh, it was likely authentic. She didn't rule out the possibility of forgery, but felt it was likely authentic. And then you had an entire issue of. New Testament studies, another very prominent journal devoted to articles by top scholars arguing uh, that this was a fake. So it seemed to be it's something of a standstill, or though by 2015, you know, the majority of scholars were in the camp that this was a fake. But there were still people were still at loggerheads. And so I'm thinking, you know, is there anything I can do as a journalist? I'm not a scholar of Gnosticism. I don't read Coptic. I, I have nothing to contribute on that on that front. But I am good at, at, at asking questions, knocking knocking on doors, um, using public records. And so, you know, one of the, one of the nice things that Dr. King did after, uh, in 2012 is that I said, look, um, I realize you can't tell me who this individual is, but I'd really like to be able to sort of show the public kind of the, 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 the dance between complete stranger collector and scholar that leads to the publication of this thing. Is there any way you can share with me some of the text from his email? So she very graciously uh, did that. She gave me the text from the email. She took out all the identifying information, no names, no email addresses, no locations. Um, but there were enough little clues in those emails, I realized three years later, to give me a kind of thread that I could pull to start to figure out who the owner might be. And that leads on this just absolutely wild adventure um, that will take me all the way from, you know, retirement communities of Florida uh, through uh, the sort of dark corners of the internet uh, to internet pornography um, that the collector is uh, a proprietor of um, starring his own wife um, to uh, the, the former headquarters of the East German Stasi. 
Um, and if you want me, to, <laughs> you want me to weigh in on some of that, I can oh, just let yeah. me know where, where oh, to start. Yeah, but it's, it's a really wild story. Um, it's so fascinating. And you wrote the Atlantic story that basically yeah. broke this open. I remember scholars emailing me like, oh, my God. And they were all focused on the porn thing for some reason. I was just focused on, oh, my God, this is an incredible article. Was there a sort of, for you, Ariel, a Milli Vanilli moment when you said, aha, I know this is a forgery? Um, I, you know, I tried to really keep an open mind. I actually did not have a position on whether it was a forgery when I set out um, to investigate provenance for the Atlantic magazine in 2016 or 2015. Uh, I really just wanted to know who the owner was and what knowing about who the owner was would, would tell us about the, the gospel of Jesus's wife and the question of forgery. And, um, you know, one of the, uh, you know, there were different, there are different way, places and, and times when the, uh, the, all the puzzle pieces started to feel like they were coming together. One of the, one of the breaks was, you know, Dr. King did not tell the world who the current owner was, but she did tell the world who the current owner told her was the owner before that. And a gentleman by the name of H.U. Laucamp, um, Hans Ulrich Laucamp, not a very common name. Um, and uh, I did, you know, I, I sort of used some databases, discovered that there had only ever been a single Hans Ulrich Laucamp who had ever lived in the United States. He lived in this retirement community in Florida. He had died a few years earlier. Um, so I couldn't, couldn't very well interview him just to see whether he had owned it. But I started interviewing people who knew him. And they all told me, like, this guy never collected papyri. He had an eighth grade education. He, he, <laughs> He uh he wasn't interested. He didn't collect anything. He wasn't he, he that wasn't his interest at, at all. So already like the the provenance story starts to develop this sort of glaring hole, which is that the individual that the the anonymous collector said he bought it, the papyrus from wasn't actually a collector. Didn't actually have papyri. Uh, and then I begin putting that into so I would eventually discover and I can mention his name here because I've mentioned it elsewhere. But the owner would turn out to be a gentleman named Walter Fritz. He's a German immigrant. Um, and uh, who's living in Florida. Uh, and um, in Googling the name Walter Fritz, I, you know, it com comes up with a lot of different uh, names. There, um, you know, there are a lot of different Walter Fritzes in the world, hundreds of them in Germany, even like nine or 10 in Florida. But one of the Google results that comes up is that there is a, uh, a 1991 article that's been written for a prestigious Egyptology journal um, in, in Germany uh, by a Walter Fritz. And, um, you know, I'm like thinking there's no way this guy in Florida who's an auto parts executive could be the same person who 20 years earlier wrote an article about uh, the Amarna tablet, you know, which is the, one of these ancient tablets between the Egyptian kings and the um, outlying provenance, provinces. Uh, is, I mean, there's just, it could just be, it's too fantastical to think that they're possibly related. Um and then I discovered in, in sort of looking in Florida public records that this Walter Fritz living in Florida owns this sort of mysterious business called Nefer Art. And, you know, I, I don't speak Egyptian, but I did, Nefer to me sounded like <laughs> yeah. an Egyptian word. I bells mean, are going with, off, yes. Bells are going <laughs> off like Nefertiti. I'm like, wait a second. So there's someone related to this guy who allegedly for, formerly owned the papyrus, but in fact didn't own it, who is involved in some kind of, Egypt-related business, and whose name matches the name of someone who wrote an article in Germany um, uh, about Egyptology, sort of deciphering this ancient text 20 years earlier. And so when I first call Walter Fritz in Florida, he denies everything. I didn't know. I'm not the owner of the, the Gospel of Jesus' wife. I never studied Egyptology. 
you've got the wrong guy. You're barking up the wrong tree. He uh, basically hangs up on me. And, um, and I, you know, I have to thank the Atlantic magazine here. They were willing to send me to Germany to sort of figure out whether there was any connection between this Florida Fritz and, um, and the guy who'd, who'd apparently written this article. And sure enough, when I go to Germany and I start showing people the photograph of the Florida Fritz, which I got from a local Florida newspaper, they're like, yeah, looks kind of like a guy who studied Egyptology at the Free University in Berlin, um, but washed out of the program. He never, he never finished it. He just disappeared one day, just vanished uh, into thin air. No one ever knew what happened to him. This is the first, you know, one, one person said, oh, I thought he was dead. Is he still alive? Um, and so he, this Walter Fritz turns out to be the same guy who studied Egyptology um, uh, in, in, in Berlin uh, two, two, uh, two uh, decades before. And to me, that's when some of the, those bells start ringing where you're like, wait a second, you know, what's, what's going on here? And that's even before I realized that he, and, he is into this, um, he, is a, uh, he and his wife are very successful internet pornographers uh, in a genre of porn known as hot wife, um, in which uh, the uh, wives are thought to have this, this insatiable lust. Um, they can't be satisfied by their own husbands, and so therefore engage in kind of kind of a multi- sex with multiple partners while their kind of cuckolded husbands sit back and watch. Um, and you know what made it all the more interesting and fascinating is that even in their own lives, um, there is this intertwining of theology and sexuality. So not only is uh, Walter, well, Walter Fritz happens to be born on December 25th, which I find fascinating. Oh, really? Um, wow. Yeah. <laughs> so, so yeah, he sort of, you know, I mean, I, you, one could imagine he imagined himself a kind of Jesus and his wife, a kind of modern day Mary Magdalene. Um, but she, you know, she is a star of this genre, of this hot wife genre of porn. Um, and not only that, but she also has self-published a book, um, uh, it was something about spiritual evolution, universal truths, volume one, in which she claims to channel the voices of angels um, and the voices of the, uh, of God and the archangel Michael and, and via automatic writing so that she sits down and she hears, she has a uh, uh, clear audience. I think she calls it where she has no medium involved. She can just hear the voices of angels and then she can sort of instantly transcribe what they're saying, their wisdom uh, onto into a word processor, and then she published some of this. Now, one of the things I found fascinating is that the book she publishes uh, of these this automatic writing, all of the entries of the uh, all the diary entry diary like entries in this book coincide with the period in which her husband Walter Fritz is uh, courting Doctor Doctor King. So there's a really weird way in which this kind of Jesus and Mary Magdalene like couple are living out their their porn lives uh, on the internet but are also talking in really interesting ways um, about, you know, the sex lives of the ancients and, um, and, and acting as, as spiritual medium, mediums um, in the present. And, and, and to find all of that sort of find expression uh, in, in like eight lines of Coptic, um, to me, it was just, it's just sort of brilliance to it that I, I hope readers have, have, you know, find illuminating when they try to wrestle with what exactly is this couple up to? Uh, when they approach Karen King with this sensational papyrus. Yeah, it's almost like it was some sort of Greek tragedy that mm. Walter and Karen King were going to meet. You write the parallels to their lives, their desires, 
they're very connected. Uh, at least so Walter could have seen sort of a, a twin in Karen King for uh, various reasons, which I want to get into. But also, didn't Walter buy the domain, the gospel of Jesus's wife? And that was a huge clue. Yeah, that, that was another big breakthrough because, you know, after he had lied to me and said, I don't know what you're talking about. I'm not the <laughs> owner. I don't know anything about this. Um, again, using the um, very uh, sophisticated forensic tool, google.com, um, I started putting in ver variations of, of Dr. Uh, of, sorry, of Walter Fritz's email address, different ways of configuring the address. Or, you know, um, and um, after about an hour of doing that, up popped um, a website that tracks the history of domain name registration. So when you register a domain, domain name, which is a fancy way of saying, you know, whatever follows www in a, in a web address, um, yeah, there's a, there's a registrar that uh, records all of that. Um, and so what I discovered was that um, uh, someone using Walter Fritz's email address, presumably Walter Fritz himself, um, had registered the domain name www dot gospel of Jesus's wife dot com. Um, so and, and this was an individual who had his email address and was using the same physical address where Walter Fritz lives. And I'm like, well, that's interesting. Like, is he a guy who kind of took an interest in the gospel of Jesus's wife after Karen King announced it to the world? So I go back and look at the date of the domain registration. And it's three weeks before uh, Karen King goes public. And, you know, that's at a point where only a very, very small group right. of people are privy to the, this coming announcement and her name for the papyrus. So that made it very, very clear that Walter Fritz had lied to me, number one, in our first conversation. And number two, that he was very, very intimately connected with the papyrus. And that was that was one of those um, you know, falling out of your chair moments for me as well. Oh, I bet it must have been uh, incredible. And he had never, uh, he never really admitted it. Guess he wanted you to write a novel about Mary Magdalene with him, but he never really admitted it in the end, did he? No, I, you know, it's. I mean, we have to give Walter's due here. I'm a, I'm a big believer in journalistic fairness. You know, I'll be very clear with every all of your listeners. Walter Fritz continues to deny having forged the Gospel of Jesus' wife. So that's his position. Um, I think. If you talk to a lot of scholars, they they would argue that there's a very, very strong circumstantial case, that there's only one person who had the um, you know, the skills, the time, the motivation, and the opportunity to forge it, and that's Walter Fritz. Um and I you know, I should also say that um, you know, one of the one of the big discoveries in the book too, which I think makes it a lot harder for for Walter to maintain his position. That he's, you know, he he would never ever do something like this. Uh, using public records again in Florida, I discovered that um, while applying for jobs with the Sarasota County, Florida schools, Walter Fritz uh, submitted a faked, a forged Egyptology diploma, master's diploma, from the Free University, the very school where he and all of his professors, he, he'll tell you himself, he never graduated from. But um, for purposes of a job application, he submitted a forged Free University Egyptology diploma in his own name, basically using the same MO that every scholar thinks he used in both the Gospel of Jesus' wife and the fake provenance documents, which he supplied Dr. King to convince her of, of, that it had authentic provenance. It's a, it's a cut and paste. It's the same MO every single time. You take a pre-existing document, you put some new text on top of it, um, 
and then you Xerox it, and there's no original. So the, for the fake Egyptology diploma that he submitted to the Florida, to the Sarasota County Schools, it's actually, if you look at the, the, the names of the professors at the bottom, the professors didn't teach in Egyptology at all. They taught in the Department of like Eastern European History, completely unrelated department. Walter Fritz uh, basically put, put some new um, text on top of that diploma, Xeroxes it, submits it with his job application. Looks like he has a degree in Egyptology when he never, when he never did. Um, clearly, obviously, the Gospel of Jesus' wife isn't a Xerox job, but it also uses the same cut and paste sort of MO, where nothing is original. It's all, you know, to use a, 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 a term that comes up in the, in the Gospel of Thomas, it's all an image of an image. Um, <laughs> yes. and, and, and I think that all of that makes, you know, it, so, so my, the point here is that Walter Fritz can swear up and down that he didn't forge the Gospel of Jesus' wife. What Walter Fritz can no longer do is claim that he is not a forger or that he works very closely with forgers, or frankly, that he's not willing to risk um, criminal charges um, that f- via forgery, because submitting uh, fake education credentials in the state of Florida with the intent to defraud is a crime. And he never was detected. Um, uh, but uh, I think one of the things, one of the breakthroughs for me in the reporting of the book is this discovery that Walter Fritz is indeed um, a creator of or um, uh, condoner of uh, of forgeries, of known forgeries, and is willing to take to risk quite a bit of his own skin in sort of sending them into the world. Yeah, really fascinating. And at the same time, getting psychological again. I want to say on the record, I I feel no Schrodinger or excitement about Karen King or Walter Fritz because you you're a journalist. Of course, you're putting out all the data, all the facts out there. But you also show a picture that, to me, bring a lot of empathy to both Karen King and Walter Fritz. I mean, Walter Fritz had his own unconscious desires, his own blind spots. And as you write, much of it was because he had uh, not a very good childhood. He was uh, apparently raped by a priest. He mm-hmm. had he came mm-hmm. from a broken home. At yes. the time of the Gospel of Jesus' wife, his life was kind of falling apart. His porn business was losing money. He couldn't sell his house, his company he'd lost. So there was a lot going on that made Walter Fritz do what he did. And as you write, Ariel, he was, he was settling scores with all the male authority figures who robbed him of his potential. In essence, he didn't have a father yeah. or other figures. And right. again, it's almost like uh, destiny that he would do this and meet Karen King. <laughs> yeah, no, I think that's right. And I think as a journalist, I've always tried to portray people in three-dimensional ways. I don't think portraying people is sort of... A, very touching all, moments of the book, I must say to the audience. Very touching moments. Well, thank moments. you. Thank you. Yeah, I mean, I think I think people are either, neither all, you know, all good or all evil. We, we're not, not, none of us are cardboard cutouts. We're, there's good and, and, and sort of the potential for, uh, you know, bad in all of us. And I really tried to spend a lot of time making sure that readers had sympathy for all of the characters. So these are human beings. These are people who um, are as frail uh, and vulnerable as, as, as all of us as human beings are. And I really wanted people to, to not sort of, uh, to, to really ask themselves, like, you know, how is what happened here in, in a fundamental way, uh, very human, uh, tragic in a kind of human way, not, not in a way that paints either Dr. King or Walter Fritz as, as monsters or dupes or naifs or anything too exactly. simple. We should really spend some time thinking about who they are as, as human beings. I, think, I thank you for making that. 
that observation. Oh, yes. You make a great case. And I have to admit, after I read your book, I, of course, have to look at my life and say, there's times in my life where I had a hidden agenda or a projection, and I was completely blind to it, and damage was done to people. Do you ever wonder of that about your life, Ariel? You wonder, well, maybe I'll write a book or an article and somebody will tap me on the shoulders like, dude, look at all the hidden, you know, <laughs> look at all the blind spot you had with all of this. Do you ever wonder about that? Yeah, I mean, certainly this- We this, all have this, it. Yeah, we all. It certainly made me more attuned to it and the way in which like all of us are vulnerable when, when we're presented with something that we've always felt should be true. Um, I mean, it's a very human- um, reaction to, to, to it. And I think, I guess the other question I, I think that the, the, the book raises is, and this comes at the very end, and I don't want to reveal too much, but, um, you know, the, the extent to which Dr. King was uh, legitimately tricked by this, you know, I, th I think there is something of an open question. I think there is a question that the book raises at the end um, about whether Dr. King, I mean, I, I mean, I, I flag at the beginning of the book that Dr. King initially believes that this is a forgery before she even goes public with it. She says as much. She says, I don't think this is real. She sends Walter Fritz packing. She doesn't want to help him. Um, she's like, there's no way this can be real. She just she just knows. Um, she, she looks at it. She looks at what it's saying. And then after blowing him off very mysteriously, um, four months later, she comes back and she's like, yeah, you know what? I think we're going to publish this. I'd really like to take this out into the world. And we're going to, you know, I'd even be willing to offer a home to it at Harvard. Um, I will get my former colleague at Princeton to, to authenticate it. And so there's this like 180 degree turn. And so the book raises this interesting question about whether Dr. King, again, she's, she's a skeptic. She's not easily duped. Whether on some level, Dr. King knew this thing was really fishy and went ahead with it anyway. And this gets at the question of, you know, um, you know, to what extent was she willing to take something public that she knew was pretty dodgy because of the potential it offered of and the platform it offered her to talk to reach a very very wide audience with ideas that she's always held dear for her the be all and end all was never the gospel of jesus wife it's too small it doesn't say enough but what the gospel of jesus wife does is it gives you an audience of millions to talk about texts that are authentic and are really really fascinating like the Gospel of Mary, oh, like yeah. the Gospel of Judas, like the Gospel of Thomas and the Gospel of Philip. It gives her that door to walk through the way that the Jesus Seminar once gave her that, 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 that platform and the way in which the Da Vinci Code um, gave her a platform. And I talk about that a lot in the book because Dr. King was one of the go-to experts during the height of the Da Vinci Code craze. And, you know, reporters all over the world were calling her for comment and she was quoted in uh, Newsweek, Time Magazine, all these all these TV specials. And unlike many other scholars of, of the Nagamati texts, including Harry Attridge at, at Yale, um, she was actually willing to embrace a fictional text as a sort of an, an ignoble means to a, to a noble end. That if, if the Da Vinci Code is, is opening the eyes of, of, of Christians to questions they should be asking about early Christianity, then great, let's use it to, to ask those questions. Whereas other scholars were like, wait a second, <laughs> the Da Vinci Code is a fictional thriller. <laughs> this is not, this is not history. Um, Karen King was at the school that this was a very, as she put it to me in one interview, this, the, the Da Vinci Code was a huge teachable moment, even though it was a work of fiction. And so on one level, the, the, the question, this gets to the more complex moral questions the book asks towards the end. It asks whether Dr. King would be willing to use another 
um, manuscript um, that on some level she suspected was a fiction to, um, to uh, as a platform to talk about uh, bigger truths. And, and that's a question I want to leave readers with you know, as they get to the end of the book to decide for themselves. Um, certainly a provocative one, I realize. This is a great read audience. I couldn't put the book down and I think you will all enjoy it. But we are at the end. First of all, Vance, thanks for uh, joining us on this fascinating adventure, this fascinating journey. Oh, my pleasure. It's definitely very fascinating and uh, great work, Ariel. Thanks. Yes. Yeah. And I, I hope I hope people read the book. It's called Veritas, a Harvard professor, a con man and the gospel of Jesus's wife. And if you want to go deeper and you're, you know, you want to go, you know, geek out on some of this stuff. Uh, if you visit my website, www.arielsabar.com, there's a bunch of other goodies there for folks who want to go a bit deeper. Oh, yes, and I will have this on the show notes audience, so you'll be able to click to get his book and his website and everything else. Ariel, thank you very much for writing this book. I loved it. Thank you for your time, and thank you very much for coming on Aeon Byte Gnostic Radio. My pleasure, Miguel. Thank you for having me. And there you have it, my beloved true seekers. The first part of our interview with Ariel Sabar on his book, Veritas. I know you'll enjoy the book as much as I did. In our second part, we'll explore more about the Da Vinci Code. Ariel will give us his sound views on what he learned on the historical Mary Magdalene. He'll share more on how he exposed Walter Fritz and his schemes, as well as Walter's intense and shocking interest in the occult, including Crowley and Gematria. Ariel will share insights on what he learned from Gnosticism and will explain how the internet and social media has changed the game when it comes to scholarly investigation, discoveries, and forgeries, and how Harvard University had its own secret agenda in the whole Gospel of Jesus' wife fiasco, and it's disturbing. We'll certainly discuss what has been the fallout for Harvard and Karen King since Ariel's book came out. As mentioned in the intro, I got Robert Price to give us his take on the Gospel of Jesus' wife, Dark Epic. After all, Bob was with Karen King in the Jesus Seminar. Expect some engaging content on Mary Magdalene. Bob will also provide his perspective on other controversial discoveries like Secret Mark, the James Ossuary, the Gospel of Judas, and more. More than two hours of high-octane content that continues to help you understand that most of what you are and reality is is just a forgery too. And time for the real gospel that is your authentic self. So become an AB Prime member or patron at Patreon for the full interview and to continue growing this red bill cafeteria. Only $6.99 a lunar cycle, or whatever you want to pledge on Patreon. There are several tiers. You won't find this Gnostic content or many of our guests anywhere in cyberspace or even meat space. When you subscribe, it will cost you about a buck per episode, and that's a deal of many lifetimes. 
Membership includes full access to the archives with more than 14 years of quality interviews. You'll also get an invitation to the Inner Sanctum of Gnosis Facebook group and the Discord channel, where past guests like John Munter, Scott Smith, Edward Pandemonium, Tim Freak, and Rosamonde Miller hang out there, part of some mind-expanding continual conversations. And I'm always there to interact with you and answer your questions. Even support in the form of some shekels to PayPal or the U.S. mail really, really helps. I also have the new merch store and an Amazon wish list, as I always need equipment in this universe of entropy. Don't forget me books, like Voices of Gnosticism or other Voices of Gnosticism. And yes, Finding Hermes is live, and we will be having our first virtual Alexandria meeting soon. You can do so many wonders. I just know it. I just know it. And you are so full of potential you can tap into right now. Thanks for being here. Thanks for being yourself. Your true self. Here in the desert of the real. And here in the Black Iron Prison. Hello and goodbye as always. goodbye to your credit card rewards. Greedy corporate mega stores, led by Walmart and Target are pushing for a law in Congress to take away your hard-earned cash back and travel points to line their pockets. The Durbin Marshall credit card bill would enact harmful credit card routing mandates that would end credit card rewards as we know it. If you love your credit card rewards, tell your lawmakers, hands off my rewards. Tell them to oppose the Durbin Marshall credit card bill.